0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to Good Wolf Radio. It's Jerry Scarlato. Today, we're going to be reviewing The Expectation Effect by David Robson. This great little book is very revealing for how our expectations, since the name, um, basically set what we do in life. They set what we get out of life. They set what we uh, achieve on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, and so on. Um, If I were to summarize this book in a couple of sentences, I would say that your expectations dictate the outcome of your health, of your wealth, of your relationships, of your ultimate finality, and so many other areas that we'll hit on as we go through our top 10 ideas from the expectation effect. And... In so changing your expectations and your standards of living, the the beliefs that you have around what is possible, you can drastically change your life. This is something that we talk about regularly. The name of the podcast is Good Wolf Radio because we are striving to feed our good wolf. As the uh, Indian proverb goes, we have a good wolf and a bad wolf inside of us, and the one that you feed is the one that you get. And so, in this context, the expectation effect, the beliefs that you have is what you will see. The beliefs that you have, the expectations that you have out of life, is what will show up for you. And the more that you can understand that, the better off that you will be. But before we jump into that, I want to remind you guys that we have a free Facebook community called Good Wolf Community. We are currently in the middle or toward the end, by the time this releases, of our Slim for Summer 21 Day Challenge. Um, If you jump into the community, which is absolutely free you will be able to go back, obviously, and see all of those previous posts. You can see all of the challenge posts, uh, a bunch of good interactions going on. Today's challenge or today's uh, content was about doing workouts at the park while your kids are playing sports, and the video is its funny from my perspective because the girls told me about how scared they were going out to the park and having to uh, recruit people to work out with them with a bunch of other people around. So anyway, I got a little giggle just watching the video because of that. But nonetheless, um, jump into the Good Wolf community, free Facebook page. All you have to do is ask to be uh, part of the community and we will accept you. That is, of course, unless you are not a kind person in which we will kick you out. So that's that. Now let's jump into our big ideas. We have 10 big ideas. We'll go over five for this episode. And then in the next episode, we'll go over the last five, lots of good things in this book. Um, lots of, lots of really, uh, I would say mind changing ideas that we, uh, that we could potentially talk about. So narrowing down just 10 was pretty challenging. Uh, the first big idea comes from chapter one, so what I, what I did is there's actually 10 chapters in the book. So I literally just took an idea from each chapter. So that worked out really well. Uh, nonetheless, chapter one, believing is seeing. Um, the quote that basically defines this chapter is we don't, uh, we do not see things as they are. We see them as we are. So he kicks off this chapter with a story about the London Gatwick Airport. Um, and how on December 19th, 2018, the airport shut down because security people in the airport saw a bunch of drones flying around and they more, more and more drones flying around and people were panicking and security was panicking and this, that, and the other thing. So they shut the airport down and so on and so forth. And I don't know, uh, a day later, opened it back up. And after some investigation, they realized that uh, lo and behold, there were no drones. They looked, they looked for traces of drones, they looked at the security cameras, they couldn't find anything, they didn't see anything, um, nothing happened. There there were no drones. So what ended up happening? Well, as the chapter tells us, uh, which the name of the chapter is the prediction machine. That is your mind, that is the prediction machine. Um, once one person or one security guard or one could have been just uh, one general population person at the airport saw or thought they saw drones and relayed that to another person that person then started looking around and they thought they were seeing things as well that they then related to another person and then they were seeing things and so on and so forth and so the cascade began so there are many anecdotes like that in this chapter where um, what we believe, what we believe is what we see. We've heard the saying seeing is believing, which is kind of partly true. Once you see something happen, you can't unsee it happen. And the first time you see something, even if you've never believed it's true, then you kind of have to believe it's true because you've seen it happen. But also, what you believe to be possible is what you see. You can convince yourself just because you see something that seems unbelievable that, oh, well, that can't be real. That's got to be fake. Because you don't believe it to be true. Um, your, your current status in the social realm has a big, uh, is a big predictor of your beliefs as well. There's another story uh, where where is it? Here it is. Warp perceptions resulting from biases in the brain's predictions can also contribute to our social anxieties. So how we generally live our lives will also dictate um, how we perceive things. This study talks about, or this paragraph, these couple paragraphs talks about um, basically how they had people watch a video and they watched the people's eye movement. And then I think before or after the video, they had them answer a couple of questions on their basic beliefs about anxiety and stress and this, that, and the other thing. And what they found was people who were more anxious and stressed tend to watch things or watch for things uh, that were more anxious and stress inducing. So, we literally will pay attention to things more often um, based on our current beliefs, based on our current uh psychological demeanor. So if you are feeling more stressed, if you are feeling more fearful, or if you are feeling like things are crazy around you, it might make sense to pay attention to Um, your demeanor about things and the way that you are thinking about life in general and the way that you uh, kind of perceive life in general. And if you feel like you are more anxious than usual, then maybe you're just paying attention to more anxious uh, topics and more anxious experiences. So that is basically chapter one. Chapter one, believing is seeing. And that sets the pace for the rest of the book where he basically starts to break down in all of the areas of our lives how what we believe will dictate what happens to us. Which leads us to our second big idea. And that is, are you taking your placebos? So this chapter is about the placebo effect, hence the name. If you don't know what the placebo effect is, it is essentially that you can take a sugar pill, you can take a salt pill or whatever it can the placebo can be whatever it doesn't have to be anything in particular, and someone can tell you that is that it is to help your pain or it is to help your blood sugar or it is to help whatever the thing is, and the thing will improve even though it is not actually a medication or a pill or a supplement to help improve that particular ailment. So the placebo effect is very real. Um, It is, it's been recognized for a long, 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 long time. And Thomas Jefferson himself, whenever he was president, talked about how he believed that many medications were more harmful than, um, were doing more harm than good. And how a lot of people would, bode well to have the illusion of treatment rather than the actual treatment itself. What the quote is here uh, from the book is writing to a friend in 1807, he he expressed his fear that some doctors were becoming overzealous with their administration of common medications, such as mercury and opium, which they don't use as medications now anymore, um, which he feared were often doing more harm than good. He believed that many complaints could be better served with the illusion of medical treatment. Um, And then he goes on to talk about how one of the doctors that he knows has been treating people with placebos and they've been getting better. So the placebo effect is very real. It is so real, in fact, that Pharmaceutical companies have had to figure out ways to overcome the closing gap between medications and the placebo. Uh, Over time, as pharmaceutical companies have tested medications, they have to test it against a placebo. And over time, the placebo has become more and more more effective. It has become more and more impactful, whereas the medications are staying About the same as far as their effectiveness. And it makes no sense because a placebo is just placebo. It doesn't matter how potent it is. It doesn't matter how much of it you take. It doesn't matter anything like that. The placebo is not a real thing. It is just whatever is in the pill. And so there's no reason why a placebo should become more helpful for an ailment over time. There's no reason for it. Um, Except for the fact that the more we become aware that a placebo can help, the more likely a placebo will help. So what happened was, or what they found happened was, um, part of the reason why placebos became more effective was because there was widespread belief that placebos are effective and whenever we start to believe that something is useful and something is helpful, it becomes useful and helpful. So uh, here's a couple of statistics on the gap that was closed between a placebo and a drug. Um, if you look at tests of painkillers in the 1990s, for example, the active drugs tended to outperform the placebo by around 27%. That's a pretty decent clip. Um, but by 2013, that advantage had dropped to just 9%. Crucially, this was caused almost entirely by the increased potency of the sham treatments, which brought about, about a 20% more pain, for pain relief at the end of the period compared to the beginning, while the active drugs did not see a similar rise. So, again, the the placebo is just a placebo. It is not anything special. It is not anything that is actively doing anything, but our belief that the placebo can do something itself raises its efficacy. The last thing in this chapter that I want to share is about a study on uh, people with anemia. Uh, Anemia is iron deficiency, essentially. Uh, These people were to be given an iron infusion, but beforehand... Uh, Some of them were shown graphs of how their hemoglobin levels would rise and how that would affect their fatigue levels, how that would help them feel better. Some of them were shown the graph. Some of them weren't shown the graph. And what they found was um, patients with enhanced expectations of the treatment showed markedly lower levels of fatigue than the control group. The control group is the one that was not shown the graph That was not shown anything. All they were doing, all they were, uh, that was done to them was they were given an iron infusion. So, this group that had been given the expectation that the iron infusion is going to improve their hemoglobin levels so much that their energy levels were going to increase, um, they had markedly higher levels of energy and lower levels of fatigue. Whereas the other group, they were given the same exact infusion. But we're not shown the graph and we're not told that their energy levels would increase. Um, they did not have the same levels of energy increase and lower levels of fatigue. So, of course, n- not all of this is uh, to say that like all of medication and all of healthcare and all of that is simply not useful because you can get the same thing out of a placebo. Like, that's not. What I'm saying this is certainly not what the chapter is saying, and yet a lot of us would potentially bode well to um, have more belief in just our body's potential to fix itself instead of immediately jumping on the healthcare bandwagon and going down that rabbit hole. Which then leads to chapter three. Chapter three is the hex of expectations. Um, That's the big idea out of this chapter, and if chapter four is about placebos, which are very helpful and are things in which help improve our outcomes, chapter three is about nocebos, which are the opposite. They are things in which um, deteriorate our outcomes, Um, which is very real, and he kicks off the chapter with an anecdote about a patient who died of liver cancer, which doesn't seem unreasonable. Um, The guy was told that his liver cancer was, I don't, let's see, uh, was diagnosed with, I'm sorry, esophageal cancer, I was wrong about that. Uh, successfully removed the tumor from the esophageal cancer, but further scans revealed that the cancer had spread to his liver. Okay, so the esophageal cancer had spread to his liver. He was told he would be lucky to live until Christmas that year. Um, In the end, he survived to celebrate the holiday with his family, but died in January. Uh, Upon autopsy, what they found was that the liver tumor was actually very small, um, the liver tumor was actually very treatable in that he probably could have potentially lived for a very, very long time. So what happened? Like, why did the guy actually end up dying whenever his the actual cancer itself was not as um, not as effective or not as effective, not as uh, detrimental to his health as we as he was told. Um, well, we, again, we tend to believe what we are told. We are, we believe what we, uh, what we expect, whatever we expect, we generally will get. And this guy was told that his liver cancer was so bad that he'd be lucky to live to Christmas. And he lived through Christmas, but died in January of a liver cancer that was treatable was smaller than they expected, um, and was of such low consequence that he could have potentially lived a very long, healthy life. But because he was told otherwise, he, he did not make it. So uh, a nocebo, like I said, is the opposite of a placebo. It, it is something that deteriorates our health, even though it actually doesn't do anything, even though it actually has no bearing, no stimulus against our health. Um, this doesn't only happen with cancers. It also happens with medications. One guy, um, that he references in the book, almost overdosed on, uh, placebo pills. He talks about how the guy was taking, uh, the guy's taking pills for depression, I believe, or he was in a, he was in a clinical trial and the guy's taking pills and he didn't know That he was on, he was in the placebo group, um, but he was depressed and he wasn't happy, so he tried to overdose on the pills. He took the whole bottle of pills, was writhing in pain, and so on and so forth, and you know, passed out, and all of these bad things happened to him, and he almost died, and they had to bring him back to life, so on and so forth. Um, And come to find out, he just took a bunch of sugar pills. How does that happen? How do you almost die from a bunch of sugar pills? Well, because he thought that he was taking the actual pills. He believed that he was taking the actual pills. And in so believing, he then had the effects of an overdose, if you will. So we can will ourselves into death. We can will ourselves into an overdose comatose. And we can also let others will ourselves into certain things as well. Uh, The last thing in here, is right here on page 75. What you believe about pain and your pain relief mindset will dictate the level of pain at which you have um, just in general. So there are a couple of statements in here that um, he references from a study that you either um, always feel this way or never feel this way. So here's a couple of the statements. When I feel in pain, I worry all the time about whether the pain will end. Um, It's awful. And I think it will never get better. Uh, i become afraid the pain will never uh, will get worse. I can't seem to keep my pain out of my mind. Um, A couple more statements. But um, if you always agree with these kind of statements or you're more likely to agree with these kind of statements, then the pain is more likely to stick around. It is more likely to be more intense. Whereas if you never or you are closer to never agree with these kind of statements, it is more likely that the pain will subside quicker and that the pain won't be as intense and that you, it won't impact your health as much. So the nocebo effect is just as real as the placebo effect. Um, And the nocebo effect comes from a lot of times healthcare professionals, whenever they suggest to us that a diagnosis is so terrible or a cancer diagnosis is going to lead to death in six months or blah, 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 blah. Like I'd hate to think about the number of people who did not survive longer because they were told that you only have six months to live or six weeks to live or however long period of time. Or now that you have diabetes, you are going to be, I don't know, unhealthy the rest of your life and so on and so forth. The the expectations that are set for us from somebody else are carried forward unless we decide to fight against them. And that is because of the nocebo effect. It is because of this effect of someone else telling us what is going to happen and us believing it and us then following through literally with whatever they're trying to tell us and we'll see more about that here uh, in a little bit but for now let's talk about the mirror in your brain our idea number four mirror mirror in the brain so this chapter is very interesting it's about mirror mirror neurons in the brain mirror neurons are uh cells that allow us to understand immediately what another person is doing without having to think about it consciously so um, if you've ever trying to communicate with somebody and you look over and you see them and they just kind of like give you a glance and you can understand or you can know exactly what they're thinking um, not because you're a mind reader, but just because you understand what they're trying to communicate with you, that's mirror neurons at work. Mirror neurons also work through actually being able to feel people's pain. So empathetic people have generally higher mirror neuron activation than non-empathetic people. That probably doesn't say much about me, I guess, because I don't tend to feel I understand people's pain, but I don't tend to feel it. So I guess I'm not a very empathetic person. So maybe I need to work on that. Um, But generally speaking, people who are more empathetic will literally be able to feel somebody else's pain. If someone is sad, they will literally be sad with them. They will literally feel their agony with them. If someone is sick, they will literally feel their sickness and sometimes develop their sickness, some of their sickness, um symptoms so the mirror neurons uh mirror neurons are very real and they very much have uh an effect he talks about the happiness ripple effect in here as well um here's a couple of quotes from the chapter on the happiness ripple effect because of your regular interactions with her a a person who is happy. Um, You would be 15% more likely to achieve a high score on the survey's measure of life satisfaction. So because you had a friend who was happy and you were around them in your interaction with them, um, you would then be 15% happier. Uh, How about your friend's friend? The same study found that their happiness will be passed on to your friend who passes it on to you, increasing your chances of happiness by about 10%. Your satisfaction with life is even influenced by a friend of a friend of a friend who can increase your chances of happiness by about 6%. So literally our mirror neurons carry forward not only to people in direct contact with us, but also their friends and their friends' friends. So very interesting idea um, and also something to think about whenever you're kind of going through life and you're Mr. Grumpy Pants And how you're impacting everybody around you, and then they're going to be impacting everybody around them, and so on and so forth. All right, the last thing that I wanna talk about in this chapter of mirror neurons is gluten sensitivity. So, gluten sensitivity is very popular right now. Uh, There's also dairy sensitivity, there's also histamine sensitivity which I believe that I have, which may be affecting my sensitivity levels. After reading this book, I'm starting to think. Um, But gluten sensitivity is, I believe, a real thing. And yet I also believe that more people are, uh, believe that they're sensitive, but actually aren't. And this study that he references in here supports that belief. Uh, The study, Says, or The quote says, a recent meta-analysis found that 16% of people with reported gluten sensitivity actually responded to the gluten, um, but not the placebo. So in the study, people were given gluten-containing foods and non-gluten-containing foods. 16% of those people that said they were gluten-sensitive responded to the gluten-containing foods, but not the placebo. So those people were gluten-sensitive. While a much larger proportion, around 40%, responded equally to the gluten containing foods and the placebo. In other words, 40% of the people in the study responded to both. They thought that they were gluten sensitive. They were given both gluten containing foods and non gluten containing foods, and they responded to both. Because they didn't know what they were eating and They believed that they're gluten-sensitive. They believed that whatever they were eating, everything that they were eating, had gluten in them. They responded to it no matter what. That was 40% of people. So 16% in the study actually were gluten-sensitive. 40% thought that they were gluten-sensitive, responded to both the gluten-containing and non-gluten-containing foods, which shows that they're not actually gluten-sensitive. So I think this kind of shows potentially that a lot of us who think that we have some intolerances or sensitivities and things like that going on, we may be convincing ourselves that that's actually going on um, and making the symptoms. I'm not saying that you may not have some other sensitivity going on or some other intolerance going on, which is very possible because there are a number of different there's lots of different options that we have that, you know, could be messing with our stomachs nowadays. Um, Nonetheless, it is worth questioning your belief because as I am, I I do believe that I have a histamine intolerance, which if you've not heard of it, it's worth looking into. Not because I want to convince you of another thing that you might have, (laughs) but nonetheless, it's worth looking into because I do think that it is something that not a lot of society has, but It's easily overlooked. Um, I also am starting to believe that my belief in the histamine intolerance has probably increased my symptoms more than anything else. So I will be challenging that belief moving forward, and I will be turning down my symptoms because of that. Not that I don't believe that I have it, but I will not believe that everything affects me as much as it does. So... Um, nonetheless, that is mirror, mirror neurons, mirrors in your brain that connect with others. And you, um, will absolutely get the symptoms not always of other people's feelings, uh, symptoms of sickness and so on and so forth. I think this is a, a very sensitive subject, but I'm going to go ahead and say it anyway. Um, the covid uh debacle over the last couple years i truly believe that a lot of the exaggerated at all not maybe not even most but i there's a good chance that a good number of the exaggerated symptoms that people got were this because because you were told that this is what happens whenever you get the covid uh, virus because you were told that this is what happens this is how serious it is this is how intense it's going to be. There's a chance, as research shows, that it was only that intense because you believed that that was going to happen. And I can't tell you how many people during that period of time would start to cough and they'd go, oh no, I might have COVID. Or they start to sneeze and, oh no, I might have COVID. Or they start to get a headache or start to do this, that, and the other thing. And sure enough, a couple of days later, they were, they were sick. Maybe not with COVID, but they were sick. So... Is, does that mean like just because they believed that they got COVID? No, that's not what I'm saying. And yet at the same time, there were plenty of people who had the virus inside of them and never actually showed any symptoms and were never actually sick. So potentially they had the virus inside of them, they started to sneeze a little bit, and then them believing that they had that they had it actually brought the thing out. So nonetheless, um, the next time a pandemic happens, make sure that you don't buy into that hysteria. So that you don't uh, potentially have worse symptoms that than would be uh, than you would have otherwise. All right, the last big idea from the book that we'll review in this episode, at least, is there's no substitute for self belief. So chapter five is all about exercise, which is one of my favorite topics. Uh, I'm going to try not to self-indulge into this chapter because there's lots of good information about how our beliefs about exercise impact our fitness level, even if we don't exercise that much, if we believe that we're more fit, or if we don't believe that we're fit, that has a huge impact on our health, even if we actually fit into the category we believe we're in. Um, Also, what we believe we're going to get out of exercise impacts what we actually get out of it so to start he talks about a study done by an italian physiologist angelo masso in the late 19th century very basic study where he had people do uh finger curls finger curls sounds like tons of fun um curling their fingers as many times as possible i think they had a weight attached to the end of their finger and all they had to do is sit there and do it as many times as possible He wanted to figure out why, you know, what caused people to come to fatigue. What he found was, and the quote in the book is from uh, Angelo. The quote is, fatigue of the brain reduces the strength of the muscles. Fatigue of the brain. Fatigue of the brain reduces the strength of the muscles. Fatigue of the brain reduces the strength of the muscles. So not Fatigue of the muscles reduces the strength of the muscles. It is fatigue of the brain that reduces the strength of the muscles. So literally, what you believe or how much strength or endurance you believe you have will dictate the strength or endurance that comes out of your exercise or comes out of your capacity. That is such a huge idea because... So many people hold themselves back in the gym because once they start to feel just a little tiny bit of discomfort, just a little pump in the muscles, just a little burn in the muscles, just a little breathing in the lungs, we go, oh, this is hard. I don't know if I can do anymore. Um, But we're not even close. Like we're not even close to our potential. And it is our brain that holds us back from Moving forward, it is not our body. It is not our muscles. Yes, of course, there's most definitely a physiological capacity to everybody. Yes, but nobody, not nobody, 99% of exercisers aren't even close to knowing what that is. Myself included, not even close. Don't know. Can't be sure. Um, on page 107... Uh, He talks about more exhaustion limitation and more information from Angelo Massa. Uh, What he says is, in their view, the brain uses its previous experience, physiological sensations such as our core body temperature, its current mood, and sense of mental strain, and its predictions of the remaining tasks to carefully judge how much exercise we are capable of performing and at what intensity. Let me read that again because that is very important. This is what dictates the level of intensity we're actually going to put out. This is what's happening in your brain whenever you're exercising and dictating how hard you're working. The brain uses its previous experience, physiological sensations sensations such as core body temperature, its current mood and sense of mental strain, and its predictions of the remaining task. To carefully judge how much exercise uh, we are capable of performing and at what intensity. So, your brain is literally thinking about all of these things and adjusting your output accordingly. It's literally changing whether or not you're going to work harder or work easier or work less or work more. By thinking about all of that, your mood. Like literally your mood is going to dictate your outcome. And if you're letting that happen, then you are holding yourself back. All right, a couple more things and then we'll wrap up. So if your brain is literally dictating the output that you're putting into exercise, um, your thoughts, be them quote negative or positive, are also dictating what you're getting out of the exercise and what you're putting into them as well. Uh, David suggests an important first step is to focus on the immediate benefits you want to get from this exercise, such as feeling refreshed and energized at the end of the workout. So many of us go into exercise, go into a workout, thinking about how hard it's going to be, or thinking about how treacherous it's going to be, or thinking about how tired we're going to be, and a lot of us then end up feeling like that at the end of it. Whereas if you go in with the intentions and with the belief that you're going to get a lot of energy, that you're going to feel much better, that you're going to be stronger by the end of it, then it, it highly increases the chances that that's, what's going to happen by the end of the workout. So literally what you think is going to happen in a workout will dictate what happens at the end of the workout and how you feel at the end of the workout, because of all the negative connotation that's built around exercise. Because when we were young, we, when we were in sports, like coaches use exercise as punishment. Well, I'm going to make you run. That's not a positive connotation that we build with exercise. Like we think of exercise as punishment. And in so doing, it carries forward to our current predicament and keeps us from putting in the effort that we need to overcome all of our health out, or all of our current health issues. Um, visualization is also a big part of um, being able to have more endurance, have more health, and have more strength. Toward the end of the chapter, he talks about a study on visualization and how it helped people lift heavier objects. Hmm lift heavier weights, if you will. Um, so let's see. In one study, scientists measured uh, participants' forearm strength before they conducted a form of mental training. The task was easy if boring. They had to spend 15 minutes a day, five days a week, imagining that they were lifting a heavy object. They didn't actually lift a heavy object. They just imagined that they lifted a heavy object. Either they they visualized from a first-person standpoint or from a... So it would be a second person standpoint. I'm not very good at that, at understanding what that means. So either they were visualizing literally like being in their body and doing the thing, or they were visualizing sitting on the other side of the room and watching themselves doing it from afar. So what they found was the people who visualized them actually doing it, like being in their body, moving and lifting heavier weights those people increased their strength by 11%. They didn't actually lift heavy weights during this time period. All they did was visualization and they increased their strength by 11%. The other people who visualized viewing themselves from across the room, lifting heavier objects, they still increased their strength by 5%. So visualization and what you believe is possible has a gigantic influence on your outcome. And simply visualizing you performing well in an upcoming workout or in an upcoming task or in an upcoming Tough mutter, um, if you're going to be joining us for that at the end of July, will increase the likelihood that you perform well in it. Not going in and thinking how hard it's going to be. Not going in and going, oh, this is going to be, I'm going to be so tired by the end of this. But going in and going, this is going to energize me. This is going to make me feel good. And I'm going to rock this workout will allow you to have more uh, to put more effort into it, and therefore get more out of it because we hold, each, we hold ourselves back so much. We don't put in the effort that is necessary, not always, not all the time, but many times we find excuses to not work hard. I don't feel good. I'm tired. I'm not in the mood. Blah, 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 blah. Yes, fine. That's all true, but guess what? You can do better. So you got to choose to, and if you understand that it is your expectations, that's keeping you back, then you can start to move forward. Okay, that's our top five ideas. We'll go through ideas six through 10. Next time, make sure you hit that subscribe button. Um, Check out the book, The Expectation Effect by David Robson. Such a great book, um, even though I'm probably not doing it much justice, but make sure you check it out as well. Until next time, here's to your success in health and fitness mastery.